to do in the next 12 months is gaining what I call a disciple's perspective on family. Now, I didn't hear this sermon when I was a young convert. Uh, I wrote the message, but I tell you what, I heard a lot mentioned about the subject. And I'm going to make reference to a little bit of that today, but I want to take you to the Gospel of John tonight, everybody, and we're going to go to John chapter 1. Now, we're going to go back to a normal Bible study com I mean, format. I'm going to get some of you to read, and I'm also going to ask a few questions, you know, so that, you know, we can kind of find out where everybody is as it relates to the subject that we're going to be talking about tonight. So please stay tuned in. Those of you online, uh, you won't be able to ask questions, but uh, you know, I do want you to be able to stay closely tuned in because the subject is critical enough that everybody can gain something because part of destiny, listen to me, part of destiny is a disciple having a right perspective on the subject of family. Now, I'm not just talking about a husband and wife and his children. I'm also talking about an adult and their parents. And I'm also talking about a parent and their children and grandchildren. And these things are very, very dynamic when it comes to your life and what God is going to be asking you to do. And without that biblical discipleship perspective, the enemy can use this subject to really sidetrack people's destiny. But I'm determined that as we study the word of God tonight, we as disciples can gain God's perspective and we can go on to great victory. Amen. Amen. All right, John chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse number 40 down to verse number 42. Now, this scripture is Jesus meeting Peter for the first time. You all know that Peter was the number one disciple among the twelve. He was part of Jesus' inner circle. Peter was, I guess we could say, the main man or the main disciple. Now, you know, he got in the most trouble, but he also did some of the greatest things for Jesus. And so the reality is, this moment where Jesus met him says something about how Jesus saw Peter but also how Jesus wanted Peter to see himself. All right, who will stand and read for me? John 1, verse 40, down to verse 42. I need a reader. All right, Brother Dale's going to read for me. All right. Now, if you don't have the New King James Version, Dale, then read it off of the screen. I, I, I do that so that we'll have continuity, so that everybody won't be missing out on all the different versions of the Bible, because I read from the New King James and that's the one that we always put up on the screen. All right, John chapter 1, verse 40, down to verse 42. Everybody follow it. Go ahead, Dale. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, who is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon. All right, now in verse number 42 is where we're going to concentrate our attention. It says, he brought him to Jesus. 
Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, or like it says, the translation is a stone. You shall be called Cephas, which is the name Peter or Petros or a rock. So I want to use just that one little statement from Jesus. And the big question is, when Jesus first met him, he didn't say, hey, how you doing? You figure Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. And you figure as Jesus is meeting Peter for the first time, he'll say, hey, what's up, bro? How you doing? Hey, nice to meet you. None of those things. The first thing Jesus said to him is, you are Peter, the son of Jonah. But you're going to be called a stone or a rock. Now, interesting thing to somebody you say for meet him at the first time. Can you imagine me introducing you to somebody? Go to talk to one of my, hey, this is Graham. Oh, you are Graham, the son of Virginia. But you shall be called a stone. You'd be like, man, these is weird people around here. Hey, and we would say it, except we can't call Jesus weird. And so there's great purpose and depth inside of this statement. So let me begin by, first of all, giving you a little bit of my inspiration. Now, over the years of pastoring and preaching and doing what we do as a congregation, I've met a lot of people who have missed their destiny, or we could say ruined their opportunity when God had so clearly called them to great things in the kingdom of God. And that could be a danger even as you're listening to me online or those of you listening to me here today. The world is so distractive, but God is still raising up people and God is still calling people. Can you say amen? All right, so I've met so many people that have completely missed out on their destiny. One young man got saved here in Atlanta. The very first full year I was here, it would have been the year 2013. And I remember when he came to the church with his wife, and I remember how powerful his salvation was because even after the service were over, we were still standing by the altar talking to him and he was still weeping under the power of God because God had so powerfully saved him. And I remember going out in the parking lot and we were still talking. He came back that night to church service again and he had a big old smile on his face. He brought his kids this time, you know, and he was so excited and he called me that Monday asking me hundreds of questions about the Bible and what do I do now? I'm ready to live for God. Listen, when I say this guy was excited, he was excited, he was moved, he was ready. And he came to church for about a month and a half, straight, regular, every Sunday he was there with his wife and his kids. Well, I got a phone call from him after about a month and a half because he didn't come to church and he said, Pastor, you're probably wondering why you haven't seen me. And I said, yeah. He said, well, I, I've been going to my mother's church. And I said, well, why are you going to your mother's church? I said, God saved you here. You were excited. You were getting on with so many of the guys. He said, my mom told me that your church is a little bit too strict for me. 
And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you know, she noticed that I had put down the alcohol. I got rid of all the liquor in my house. And I told my mom I wasn't going to be drinking any more alcohol. And she said, well, why not? He said, because pastor told me that, hey, it's not the will of God for me to be drunk with wine. And I said, did you quote the scripture to her? And he said, no. <laughs> and I had given him that scripture in the book of Ephesians where the Bible says, be not drunk with wine, it is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. And I said, just read that scripture to your mother. Well, he did, and she cussed me even more. And so her whole thing is you don't have to give up alcohol just because you became a Christian and you want to get baptized. You can still drink. So I asked him, I said, are you going to listen to your mother or are you going to listen to Jesus? And he got very quiet on the phone. And I realized, I thought he was going to say, I'm going to listen to Jesus. I mean, yeah, that's what you expect. Are you going to listen to your mother or are you going to listen to Jesus? And he got real quiet. And I'm like, why is this hard for you to answer? He said, well, that, that's my mom. And it's then... Right here in Atlanta that I realized that if you don't have a proper perspective on family, you can miss God's will. And it was right then, as he was struggling, I could feel it. I said, he's not going to make it because he loves his mother more than he loves God. Can I just throw this out here before we even get into this? Uh, your mother is not going to judge you. God is. Your father is not going to judge you. God is. Listen. I love my mom and dad just like you love yours. But I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to your eternal soul, family doesn't even fall on the scale with the same weight of importance as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he was struggling. And his thing was, well, it's my mom. So he kept going to his mother's church, which is a very traditional Baptist church. They all drink, you know, they go to parties, they get drunk and everything, and it's not a problem to him. And I realized what was going on is his mom was so convicted because this boy did what the mom never did. The mom claims to have been a Christian for 20-some years, but she's never put down her Jack Daniels or Jim Beam. Well, this boy got born again, and he put it down within a week's time. And of course, instead of encouraging him, saying, son, you're doing the right thing, you know, her conviction, she's just tormented. He's not drinking with her and the uncles anymore. And I say, God bless him. But the conflict was too much for him because he loved his mom and he wanted her to love him and not be upset with him. And so all of a sudden, he pulls away from this dynamic relationship with God. And I heard after about four or five months, he's right back drinking alcohol. He's back smoking weed. His marriage is in trouble again. And I remember calling him one last time, and I said, do you think you've done the right thing? He said, you know, Pastor, you're probably right, but what am I supposed to do? It's my mother. Now, he wasn't evil. He most surely wasn't a wicked guy. He was very respectful to me. He was very open to the Holy Spirit when he answered the altar call. But his question was, what am I supposed to do? It's my mother. And so here's why I'm saying to you, 
If you don't gain a right perspective on family, it can ruin your future in God. Now, what I'm going to be saying to you tonight is not at all controversial. Some people would say, Pastor, this is very controversial. It's not controversial at all because it's very clear in the Bible. So there's nothing, you know, people try to act like it's controversial. You know, abortion, this country. Abortion is not controversial. Well, you talk about homosexuality. It's, it's not controversial. You know, people like drama and they want to make it controversial. But if something is very clear in the Bible, there's no controversy. Say amen with me. And so I want to use this little scripture because it's Jesus' first meeting with Peter. And you can see in this very first meeting with Peter that Jesus wants to set the record straight right at the beginning of his calling. He says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. But that's how you're starting off. But that's not how you're going to end up. You are going to be Cephas. Peter, you're going to be a stone, foundation for the kingdom and for Jesus' disciples. And that's exactly what happened to Peter. And we're going to talk about it in just a moment. But does everybody understand what I'm saying so far? If you do, say praise the Lord. All right. So I want to go on real quickly because after speaking to this guy that I'm telling you about, and he said, what am I supposed to do? It's my mom. As far as his mind was concerned, if it's his mom, then I have the full authority to disobey God. Because it's my family, I can disobey the Bible. Well, I'm here to tell you, no, you cannot. And that's why people start thinking that it's controversial, because people just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to face the fact that Jesus has to be first in everything in your life, including, listen to me, including your relationship with your family. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10, Jesus himself starts off dealing with this. Now, I'm going to come back to our scripture in John 1, but let's make a move through the Bible here so that we can get some perspective. Go to Matthew chapter 10. And let me read with you, starting right around verse number uh, 34. All right, Matthew 10, verse 34, and we're going to read down to about verse number 37. All right. All right, give me a reader. Who will read for me? All right, Marlene, I need you to read nice and loud. Everybody follow it. It's the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Is verse 34 down to verse 37. Okay, Marlene, go ahead and read.
verse 38 says, watch, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now let me tell you why verse 38 is there. Look up here, everybody. Carrying the cross means bearing something that's very painful and that's very difficult. That's what it means when we say someone is carrying a cross. It's just like Jesus is carrying that cross to Calvary's Hill. You're carrying something that you don't want to carry. You're doing something you don't want to do. It's very painful. It's very difficult. And it's very hard. One of the hardest things to do is look your family in the eye and say, I choose Jesus over you. It's one of the reasons why Jesus adds, you're going to have to carry this cross. If you're going to live your life for God as a disciple in the Christian church, then it's carrying the cross, which basically says, mom, dad, he was his brother, sister, everybody, I have to choose God's will over your desires for my life. Would you agree with me, folks, that that's painful? Especially in the South, where families are normally so close-knit. Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, your, your entire communities, and you know, people grow up in a community, grow up in the house together, sometimes grow up in the same church together, and it's easy for people in the family to feel like they own your entire future. Feels like, hey, they're going to control everything you do. You can't do anything to upset them. And as soon as you do, they're going to let you know. You can't do anything that the family doesn't agree with. And they're going to let you know right away. So we've just read this scripture where Jesus addresses this head on. And you'll notice he's not stammering. He's not apologizing. He says in the scripture that Marlene read, he said, you think that I've come? To bring peace? He said, oh no. He said, I've come to bring a sword. A sword is an instrument of division. Look at verse 35. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And the man's enemies are going to be those where? Inside of his own house. He said, the problem in doing God's will is not that you're worried about the people out there in your school or in your job. He said, your battle is going to be your mother, your father, your mother-in-law, your daughter-in-law, your brothers and your sisters. He said, here's where you're going to battle people inside of your own family who don't agree with your commitment to God. He said, and they're going to be like your enemies inside of your own household. Now, somebody tell me why that's true. Why would, you know, you become a Christian and you've been living in the same house with your family for all of these years. You get born again and all of a sudden your life with Jesus is like a sword and Jesus says it causes division. And then on top of that, he says these people who you have loved and they've loved you, all of a sudden he said they're like your enemies. Why is that true? What makes that happen? Somebody tell me. Come on, Siobhan.
All right. Siobhan says, hey, you become a Christian, it's like bringing light. That's very good. Somebody else. What? Why is that? Will, go ahead. Right here, Graham. Go ahead. To expound on the light thing, not only is it exposing you as a new person, it also exposes your family's flaws. And sometimes, you know, one, they're our parents sometimes, and they've had guardianship over you, and now they see, you know, even if you're not even preaching to them, just your lifestyle convicts them. And that conviction is very uncomfortable, and they don't like it, just like the story with that young lady yes. and her son. Yeah, nothing, nothing is worse to an adult parent than a teenager who gets born again and starts doing what they refuse to do, what they know they should have been doing. And all of a sudden, you're doing it, and they start saying stuff like, you don't know the Bible. I've known the Bible way before you were born. And you're saying, but you know, Mom, you shouldn't be fornicating with the man down the street. Don't you talk to me. I know what the Bible says. And all of a sudden, you know, here's this loving mother who was kissing you just last week. And now she's threatening to put you out of the house, folks, because conviction can be a very painful experience for people in your family. All right, very good. Anybody else? Real quickly. Go ahead, Dale. When we look at different people, especially families that have been in church so long, there's almost like a threat of getting complacent. And you have a family that's complacent for so long and has just been uh, essentially agreeing to one type of ideology for so long. You get somebody that gets dramatically saved, that gets the, the Word of God, that gets the Holy Spirit. They go in there and they agitate that complacency. And it's not just about, oh yeah, th this might be the ideology that you've had for so long, but it says in the Bible that you can't serve two masters. So there's only one ideology that's correct, and that's the ideology of the born-again, on-fire Christian. And that kind of just dredges up all of this complacency, yes. especially in the South, where people are like, my grandfather, my grandfather's father, five generations have been Christians. <laughs> but if you're, if, if you're holding on to this specific, complacent Christianity, it's just like lukewarm Christianity. And when you get drastically saved, all of that is brought to the forefront. Amen. You know, you know, one of the things that's very common as we talk about this subject, you know, is when young people get saved, you know, like how we outreach and, you know, someone's been out there in the world, you know, they're a young 25-year-old guy or girl, they come to church, you know, and they get around people who are trying their best to live right, and they, they want to try to live right too. And I'll tell you what happens. Listen to this. They want to come to church more than just once a week. And these old folks in, the, in your house, they've been going to church Sunday morning only for the last 30 years. You're going back to church again tonight? Yeah, more Jesus. Well, you don't really have to do it. I know I don't have to. But see, I want to and you don't want to. And see, that's where the conviction comes from. And all of a sudden, are you trying to say you're a better Christian than me? Well, I'm not saying it, but I am. You know, you go to church once a week. I want to go to church three times a week. I want more of Jesus. You just want more television. And so the reality is Jesus says, when you come into a relationship with Jesus, he said, it begins to agitate your own family. Now, this can be difficult for people to navigate because you love your family. 
You know, there's nothing worse when you're a young person, you're 20, between 20 and 30 years old, and you're living in the house with mom and dad who just want minimum amounts of Jesus, and you're going all out with God. You know, I, I pray for people like that, that if at least their parents, if they don't want Jesus like you, at least support you. At least say, baby, I'm glad that you go into church again tonight. Pray for me. But don't begin to, to, to attack them, but that's usually what always happens. Now look at verse 35, and I'm getting ready to move on from this, in Matthew chapter 10, what Marlene just read for us. All right, I want you to look at this scripture. No, not, not 35, it's 37. It says, he who loves father or mother more than me, he said, is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, I can feel some of you saying amen because some of you don't understand what he's saying. And it's easy to say amen when you're ignorant. Yeah, I can read that and you're like, amen, pastor. Did you just say amen? He who loves his mother or father more than me, he said, is not worthy of me. You can say, okay, because my mom and dad, you know, they're old people. They've lived their life. Okay, I can love Jesus. Okay, we, we can get through that one. <laughs> the second one, he who loves their son or daughter more than me. Oh, she ain't saying amen now. Because some of you got cute little kids that you love. And you know how people are today. They're so phony. Oh, my kids are everything. What do you mean your kids are everything? Jesus is everything. Your children are going to grow up one day and they're going to be gone. I'm going to be preaching about this on Sunday because it's Mother's Day. But you see, people are so phony and they post pictures on social media. These babies, they my world. And they use all these big glowing terms because maternity and paternity is very powerful when you have children. And you look at them, you know, you've produced them, you hold them, you feed them, you love them, you play with them. And, and you, but by no means would you even ever think of putting anything above them. See, that's where the problem is. And that's why we're talking about a disciple's perspective on family. Now, don't be getting all mad at me because I didn't write this. Jesus did. He said, if you love your son or daughter more than me, he didn't just say, you can't be my disciple. He said, you're not even worthy of me. I gave you those children. Say amen. I gave you your parents. I gave you your husband or wife. Don't you dare now put them in a place above me. He said, you're not worthy of me. And this is where the controversy comes from. And this is where people pack up and walk out of churches like ours because they say, you must be misinterpreting that. Me and my wife know people right now who's married to somebody who the only reason they can't surrender their heart to Jesus is because they can't understand why that pastor is telling that wife to put Jesus before your husband. Husband, I'll never step my foot in that church. What kind of church would tell her to put, her, 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 put God before me? And it's difficult for people. See, this is why the Holy Spirit is so, so critical. Because he helps to bring revelation and understanding. So Jesus doesn't back away from the so-called controversy. 
he hits it head on right here in the Bible so that as you begin to pursue God, as you begin to pursue God's will, you grow as a Christian with a right perspective. I will never allow my mother or my father to distract me from doing God's will. I will never let my brothers or sisters distract me from doing God's will. I will never even let my love for my children stop me from doing God's will. Now, some of you are not in a position to have to carry this cross yet. So it's easy for you to say amen. So you just be quiet because you ain't feeling this yet. You know, you are all amen, pastor, preacher. Well, you know, one day you're going to be sitting in this seat and then we'll see what you say then. You see, because there's people who God has called to be missionaries and they got to go thousands of miles away to another country and be there for four or five years, leave their mom and dad behind, never see their brothers and sisters, leave their children behind, living with the grandparents while they go to some third world country and they love their children. And a lot of people won't go. I can't leave my kids. I can't leave my grandkids. And they're not evil people. They're just doing exactly what Jesus said in this scripture. And so the perspective that you have to have on family is uh, I've got to trust my family into the hands of God. One of my good friends in Taiwan right now, you know, Clayton and his wife, they're good friends of ours. They're out of the church in uh, California, Pastor Eric Strutz. I remember praying for her. She came to me with almost tears in her eyes because her teenage boys were not Christian. And all she wanted was her boys to be saved, and God called them to the nation of Taiwan, all the way out in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of China, thousands of miles away from America. And she knew God wanted her and her husband to go, but she didn't want to leave her boys. They're teenagers. They're not saved. And she knew what all kind of stuff they were going to get up to and go to jail and go to hell and get shot. And she's panicked. And I remember telling her, listen, God didn't bring you this far to leave you. He won't forsake the promise that he's given you about your boys. And I remember praying for her at the Bible conference, and I got an email from her. This might have been two years ago. And the email, she was just thanking me for the prayer and sent a picture of her son. He had walked into Pastor Eric's church and rededicated his life to Jesus. You know, she's all the way in another country serving God, but the prayers still found him out there in sin. Y'all say amen. And that boy walked in completely without it. She's thinking, I've got to be here to drag him to church. I've got to be here to make them do what's right. Listen, all you've got to pray is do is pray and claim God's promise. And now she's so happy that she didn't have to sacrifice God's will because her mother heart wanted to say, no, we can't go. I've got to stay here with these boys. So in the scripture... All we're looking at is you must have a right perspective when it comes to family. And that right perspective is the raw material that Jesus needs to do great things in your life and in the life of this church and any Christian church that wants to do the will of God in these last days. Now go quickly to Matthew chapter 4 and then we're going to move on. Come on. You got to have the courage, everybody, to obey the Lord and be able to put God 
above your family and know that God will take care of your family if you'll take care of God's business. This is Matthew chapter 4. Uh, we're looking at the calling uh, of Jesus. And just look at verse 21 and verse 22. Matthew 4, 21 and 22. Who'll read it for me? Who's got that for me? All right, go ahead, Montiel. 21 and 22. This is talking about when Jesus was calling the fishermen to come and follow him. And just notice what he says about the sons of Zebedee. Notice. Go ahead. It's Matthew 4, 21 and 22. Go ahead. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, now what is the significant part of that scripture? that relates to this lesson right here. Nate? Immediately. That's it. Take a look at it up here. The Bible says, and immediately they left the boat. And who else did they leave? And they followed Jesus. Now you got to remember, Jesus is walking along the shore, and he sees these two boys, James and John, and he calls them, you guys follow me. You're going to be two of my disciples. And the Bible says, immediately. They're there. They had just finished fishing. Their father's got a fishing business. His name is Zebedee. And they're there mending the nets like fishermen do at the end. They're just kind of clearing all the junk out of the nets, getting ready for the next day. And Jesus comes and says, come on. And they said, got to go, Dad. Got to go. And I can imagine, what do you mean you got to go? We got a fishing business to run. He's going to leave me here? Come on, this is Zebedee and Sons fishing excursion. Hey, Jesus is calling us. We got to go. And what I find interesting is that they just dropped everything and immediately said, hey, when Jesus says go, we got to go. But here's what's interesting is what the scripture doesn't say. Because you don't hear complaining from Zebedee. You know, I, I, I want to preach a whole sermon. Uh, just the fact that Zebedee released his boys. He said, listen, Jesus wants you. You guys go ahead. I'll handle this. And he says, I've got a right perspective on the call of Jesus. When Jesus calls you, yes, I'm going to have to handle this all by myself. Maybe I have to go find some people in the community to help me do the fishing. But listen, you can't worry about me. God will take care of me. You've got to go and obey God. So you see, James and John immediately had the right perspective on their family. See, but Zebedee, the father, also had the right perspective on his family. And these two boys end up becoming great disciples. And I'll tell you what, God has a great reward for men like Zebedee who will release their family. People like you who will release their children or their brothers and sisters and not ride their back because they're being committed to God and say, why do you serve God? Why are you paying tithes? Why do you go to church so much? Why do you want to get sent out? Why do you want to be a missionary? How come you go into church and you go into practice again? You've been in church five times this week. Why? You know, no, no, you release people to God's will. And that's what you're finding in the scriptures. Everybody understand what we're saying so far? All right, so now when we go back to the original text in John 1, I only chose this text because Jesus 
comes to Peter on the very first meeting. The Bible says that Andrew, Peter's brother, says, We have found the Messiah. We found him. And he takes Peter and says, Come on, I'm bringing you to meet Jesus. Anybody who brings you to meet Jesus, you ought to be grateful for him. And he brings his brother Peter to meet Jesus. And the Bible says the first time that Jesus lays his eyes on Peter, we read what the scripture says, didn't we? He says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be Cephas, a stone. Now, I find this very appealing to me because, number one, like I said, it was the first time he met him, but his choice of words were not just a light. He says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. He's forcing Peter, listen to this, to face and deal with the greatest area of conflict in discipleship. He's doing it at the very first instance. I wish more preachers would do this when people get saved. You know, go head on right with the issue that's holding people so they can deal with it as soon as they get up off the altar. He said, you are Simon the son of Jonah. Now, obviously, most of the Bible commentators tell us that Peter's dad was somebody quite important and his identity was connected with Jonah, his father. And he said, you are the son of Jonah. It would almost be like, I know you are your father's son. I know who your family is. I know that your identity and your future is connected to your father whose name is Jonah. And that's how it's been all of your life. But if you follow Jesus and accept the call, then all of that is going to have to be put aside because you're not going to identify as the son of Jonah. You are going to be the son of God. You are going to be Peter. You are going to be the apostle. You are going to be Cephas, a rock. Whatever your dad wants you to do, you're not going to do. Whatever your dad's dreams for you, it's not going to be your future. You're going to be called of God. You're going to be Cephas. You're going to be a stone. You're going to be a foundation. Well, that's a lot to deal with. You imagine we're praying for somebody at the altar for the first time. They come and give their life to Jesus. Say, okay, before you get up off your knee, get back down there. Mom and dad got to go. Oh, you studying in university? Well, you better pray whether God wants you to continue on because he might just want you to serve God. You making money? He might want you to quit that job. He might want you to be a disciple. And you start dealing with people about some, some head-on issues. You got a girlfriend? Mm-hmm. Y'all sleeping together? Uh, you got to let that go too. You got some liquor in the house? Can you imagine? You know, we, we deal with that on the altar. Get a little checklist. You promise. You want to be a Christian? Yes. Okay. Check this. Mama, daddy, liquor, fornication. Come on. Check it off. Sign your name here. 
majority of the people would never come back to church. See, but Jesus looked at him, hey, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. Yeah? All right? Now let me tell you who you're going to be. Let me tell you what's going to be in your life. <laughs> it's very real. And it's the perspective that nobody wants to talk about. They call it the elephant in the room. Some of you listening to me online right now, you, you, you know, you, you, you just... You're eating your popcorn and you're drinking your Coke and you're wondering, what in the world am I talking about? You're going to be a disciple and you're going to have to face some things head on. And one of the reasons why the discipleship core in most churches have become so weak is because nobody wants to talk about the real issues. This young man I told you about at the beginning of this lesson who said, what am I supposed to do? It's my mom. You're supposed to say, no, mom. That's what you're supposed to do. When your husband says, I don't want you to go to church, you're supposed to say, no, I'm going to church. I'll see you when I get back. Yeah, but pastor, my husband doesn't want me to come. And this is the stuff people are dealing with. So Jesus, hey, he comes and commits Peter to a quality decision right off the bat. Now, I had a phone call when I used to pastor in London from a man all the way in Africa. His son was attending our church. He was attending university there in London. His father, all the way back in Africa, of course, had raised money to send him to university there in London. And so the family, you know, that's a big thing in Africa. They're banking on him, finishing university, becoming whatever, an engineer, a doctor, you know, lawyer, whatever they do. You know, they just, this is big to the Africans. And so sometimes the family would collect money to send them up to London so that they could be a success, hoping that eventually their success would be able to bring funnel money back home to Africa and to the family. So this is a big thing. Well, the son in our church told me that he wanted to drop out of university because he wanted to preach the gospel. And I said, well, have you thought about this? He said, you know, Pastor, I'm studying and everything, but, you know, he goes on outreaches, he goes on impact teams, and he's so fired up, he's feeling the call of God. He's feeling, man, I want to preach, you know, I want to get launched out into the mission field one day or pioneer a church here in England or in Europe. And, and, he, and he's, he's for real. He's a great quality man. And I'm not going to argue with him. I said, listen, if you've prayed about it and you want to do this, listen, I'm not going to stand in the way of God's will. I said, but don't play with it. Don't tell me you want to do it. And then start slacking off. He said, pastor, this is in my blood. This is what I want to do. I'm saved and called for this purpose. He called his father and told his dad that he's going to drop out of college and he's going to preach the gospel. What's your pastor's phone number? <laughs> so the father called me on the phone. He laid into me. What kind of pastor am I who would encourage someone to drop out of university? All that money that they've spent. I said, hold on. You're talking to the wrong person. Your son approach to me I said I'm like you I wouldn't want him to waste my money either I said but this is in your son's heart this is between him and God he's telling me well I'm the pastor I should encourage him I should give him advice and counsel to stay in I said, I'm not doing no such thing I said you're his dad you can work on him all you want to I said I spoke to him for a long time he wants to drop out and he wants to preach the gospel you know that man got on an airplane 
from Africa and flew to London so he could have a meeting with me and his son? Well, it didn't change me at all. It didn't change the son at all. All he did is waste money on an airplane ticket. The son's trying to tell him, Dad, you don't understand what the calling of God is. People in the Bible dropped what they were doing to answer the call of God. This is not strange or unique. And it took a while, but the father eventually, he never accepted it, but he had capitulated and realized and, and went home in a huff because he realized, I'm not going to be able to change this boy. This boy is committed to God. He wants to preach the word of the Lord. Now, I'm sharing this with you because this is the conflict that arises in discipleship. It is the conflict that arises uh, when you have problems with children and parents and grandparents uh, and the issue of family gets all clouded. And so these scriptures we're reading are so that God can lay a foundation for us as a congregation for what he wants to do in the future. Because when God puts his finger on your heart, and when God raises you up and calls you to do something for God, you can't even blink your eye when it comes to your children, your husband, your wife, your parents, your grandchildren, nothing. You have to say, God's will be done in the first instance. Can you all say amen? Y'all's amens are getting a little weaker as we go along. Now, one of the things that you might not stop and realize tonight is when Jesus says to him you are Simon the son of Jonah he's hitting on this family issue because in the eastern culture now you and I live in the western hemisphere and we are called people of the western hemisphere or some people might just say the western world or the west but when you go over in Europe and heading toward Asia, the Middle East, you're talking about what we call an Eastern Hemisphere or an Eastern culture. And we talk, start talking about Africa and Asia, you know, in places like Pakistan and the Orient. You're talking about an Eastern culture. Now, people in the Eastern culture think differently from people in the Western culture. The Western world is the crazy world. You know, they call this the New World. You know, when the English and the Portuguese and the Spanish and the Germans, the Italians and the Dutch, when they sailed east and began to colonize the New World, it was pretty much a rebellious attitude that we don't want to submit to monarchs and kings and we want liberty, we want to think free, we want to do what we want to do. Hey, and that's how we've all been raised in the Western culture. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, do what we want to do, you know, and, and so all of the beautiful traditions and cultural things of the East, we just dumped them in the sea and came to the Western world, and now it's a whole, you know, democracy and all kind of stuff like that. But in the Eastern culture, family is everything. You guys are going to have to take my word for this because you can't feel this because it's not everything in our culture. Probably the South is probably the closest you're going to get to how people in the Eastern culture feel about family. So Jesus said, you are Simon, the son 
of Jonah. He goes straight for the juggler because his identity is the father's identity. His identity is in the father's name. His identity is in the father's occupation. This is all part of the Eastern culture. Have you ever noticed? Have you ever noticed that in the Eastern culture, how people get their identity is strongly connected? And, and we adopt a little bit of this in the Western world, but nothing like the East. Matter of fact, we've taken it from the East. But listen, their identity is in their father's name and in their father's occupation. Okay, Matthew chapter 16. Let me show you something. Come on. Matthew 16, 17 and 18. Who's got it? Somebody read it for me. Go ahead, Danny. Matthew 16, 17 and 18. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Okay, now notice in verse 17 that Jesus called him Simon what? Barjona. Now, he says over in the scripture we read earlier, in John 1, you are Simon the son of Jonah. But here he says Simon bar Jonah. And all that is, is just the Hebrew prefix for son of. Son of Jonah, bar Jonah. That's all it means. So this is not a light thing. And the B-A-R prefix is something that so many Hebrews or people in the Eastern culture is something that they identified with and they were proud to be bar anything. Now over in Saudi Arabia, instead of saying bar, they say bin, as in bin Laden. B-I-N means son of. So Osama bin Laden means Osama the son of Laden. Simon bar Jonah means Simon the son of Jonah. Because this is how people had their identity established in Eastern culture. Now over in Ireland, you know they have the exact same thing. But they don't say bin or bar, they just put an O in front of the father's name. Like O'Leary or O'Reilly or O'Shane, O'Brien, because O means of or from. James O'Reilly means James from or of Riley. So you see, this is common in the Eastern culture, that people had their family connected by reason of their pride in who their family was and who their father was. You know, in Scotland, they use Mac, M-A-C, same thing, son of, like MacGregor or Macbeth or MacArthur. It just means the son of Arthur. In England, they do the exact same thing. But they don't put it in the front, they put it in the back. They put son in the back. Like John, son. William, son. Tom, son. Jack, son. Same thing. And so all they're doing is identifying you with your father's name. Come on, y'all understand this, don't you? 
over in the United States, because we're so slack in everything we do, we got it from England. Instead of just putting sun in the back, we just put an S on the back. And, and like we say, if, if it's William's son, we don't say William's son. Over here in America, they just say Williams. That's where it comes from. You are William's son. Just Williams with an S. Or Samuels. So he'd be Steve Williams. Or Will Samuels. Or Graham Edwards. That's all it means. Okay, some of y'all getting a little education today. Okay. But in the Bible, what do you think all those genealogies are for? Especially in the book of Numbers, where all they do is talk about who was the son of who. So was the son of so. And then were the son of so and so. Then is on most people just kind of flip the pages and so they can get to the good stuff. But the whole idea is just they're just telling you all these genes. You know, whole they're identifying people by their family clan. Folks, this is very, very important. The beginning of the New Testament is the same thing about who begot who and who begot who. Who is the son of who and who is the son of who. And the whole idea is that this is a big deal. So when Jesus goes up to Peter the first time he meets him and he says, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. This was a big statement. He's talking about his whole life, his identity, and his future. And Peter was probably like, yeah, I'm Bar-Jonah. I'm the son of Jonah. That's who you are now. But when I get through with you, you're going to be known as Peter the Rock. Wow. And so right at the beginning of his calling, Jesus is forcing Peter to deal with the fact that serving God, accepting the call, and being in God's will could bring you into great conflict with your family. Come on, everybody. He dealt with it right up front. Being a Christian means God first. Folks, it always has meant God first. I'll tell you right now, God, one day, is going to ask all of us to do something that our family's not going to like. And you're going to have to be able to say, God first. Your wife is going to cry, but what about our house? And what about you? God first, baby. Yeah, 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 but, but, no, no, but nothing. Nobody would ever do anything if we live in the light of our securities and our worries and our threats. You've got to be able to trust God. If God calls you for something, God's going to take care of you. Come on, if God says, I need you, he's going to make the provision for you. And you have to be able to deal with this if we're going to advance in God. Christians and churches that don't deal with this on the altar right now are usually ones that become stagnant and they never end up doing great things for God. When you travel overseas, like I have many times, you look at these powerful churches, like in Namibia and Sierra Leone and West Africa, down in Zambia and Zimbabwe and those places, we have these churches that are thriving. You go to South Africa 
and you go to places like in the islands of Vanuatu and Fiji and over in Guam and Chuk and Saipan in the Pacific, difficult places in the middle of nowhere, and you're looking at all these native people worshiping God and giving their life to Jesus. And here is some little missionary couple from Wisconsin or Arizona or from Florida or, or, or from Illinois somewhere. And here they are far away from their family, living on minimal income, doing great things for God. And they've had to leave everything back home because in their heart, God first. Now, I'm not here to tell you that it's easy. I'm just here to tell you that it's a must. If we're going to claim to be a Christian church or a New Testament church. Is everybody with me so far? All right. Matthew chapter 12. Let's go there. Matthew 12. And let's go to verse number 46. All right. All right. Who's going to get that one for me? Matthew 12, verse 46. Go ahead, Nate. Read down to verse 50. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Follow it, everybody. Go ahead, Nate. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside see, seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and said, "Here are my mother, or here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, and my sister and mother." All right. Now listen. Before we have to finish, let me ask you all a question about this scripture. What can we learn from this scripture about our lesson? about a disciple's perspective on family. Okay, just take it. Nate just read it. The Bible says Jesus is minding his business, preaching and doing what he does. His mother, Mary, and his brothers and sisters. You know that Jesus had brothers and sisters. Mary and Joseph had other children. James and, and, and Jude were two of them. It says they came and they were out there seeking to speak with him. And so somebody said, hey, Jesus, your mom and a couple of your brothers and sisters are outside. They want you to come out. They want to talk to you. And Jesus' response was, who is my mother and my brothers and sisters? And he looked at all the people. He said, these who are doing the will of God, these are my mothers and brothers and sisters. So let me ask you all a question. How does that apply to our lesson today? Now, this is, this is heavy, folks. So you, I want you guys to get something. Go ahead, Dale. Dale, how dare you rebuke that in the name of Jesus. No, no, God. No, well, that's what people would say to you. But the implication is exactly what Dale is saying. It's his mother, his blood mother, and his blood relatives, brothers and sisters. And he says, who is my mother and brothers and sisters? He said, these who are serving God with me. These are my mother and brothers and sisters. It's almost as if he was saying, yeah, they're my blood family, but they're secondary to these who are doing God's will. Folks, that's radical, isn't it? 
Okay, somebody else. Who else can tell me? What, 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 what can we pick up from that scripture? Huh? Come on, what Dale is saying is true. Will, go ahead. I guess it's really the same thing. Um, I feel myself personally way closer to my church family than my family. And that's a, not an understatement for me because I'm close with my real family. I'm one of those people in the South. I grew up and it was family, family name and everything. And I love my family and I'm close, but I'm closer with my church family because we have more in common than I do with my blood family. Mm. And I guess my church family is the blood family because we share the blood of Christ. Okay, we'll get deep on y'all now. All right. But d does that statement bother anybody? Okay, Danny's got, bring the mic over here to Danny uh, real quick before we move on. Go ahead, Danny. Those who do the will of God are an eternal family. If you live in a family that does never get saved, that's a temporal family. So what becomes more important is the eternal. What's going to last after we die? All right, see, now this is the perspective of a disciple. You see, when somebody is saved, listen to me, folks, they're going to be in heaven with you. Now, you know, your mom and your dad, your brothers and sisters, they're your blood family. You know, they're from back home. You know, they're your people. You grew up with them, family reunions. But all of them are not born again. And all that means is when the rapture takes place, they're going to be left behind. And they're not going to be in heaven with you for all of eternity. They might spend a few years with you on this earth, but we're all going to leave this earth and be in heaven for eternity. And so what Jesus is saying, the, the real family is not the temporary one that will spend 60 or so years with you on this earth, but the ones who are going to be doing God's will with you for all of eternity. Now see, this bothers people. I can feel somebody on the internet right now. Just, 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 just. Because it bothers people. Because like Will said, I love my family. See, I love mine too. But I tell you what, the Bible says in the Gospel of Matthew 24, when the rapture takes place, two shall be walking in the field. One will be taken and the other left behind. Now, what if that's a mother and a, and a, and a daughter? The mom goes to heaven and the daughter doesn't. She's never going to see her again. See, and, and that's the reality of what he's trying to teach us about a perspective on family. You can't let the blood family that we have on this earth somehow hinder us from growing in God, serving God effectively, and eventually answering the call and doing God's will. The same thing that God teaches us about marriage. Right? What does he say in Genesis 2 when God created Adam and Eve? And he says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one, husband and wife. What God says? You got to leave your mom and them. See, I'm making somebody mad again. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at the Bible. Rip the page out if you want to. Anybody in here who's married and you love your mama and your sisters and them more than you love your husband, see, you got a problem. 
You're not obeying God. He says, you leave your mother and father and you cleave to the person you're married to because that is a dynamic. He says, those two are now one. You can't be talking about it every time you get upset. Well, I'm going back to my mama. No, you work it out with your husband. That's what he's saying. You know, your family is not what they used to be anymore. You're now married. This is just like when you get saved. You're now married to Jesus. And, and they've got to take their place from where, where they're supposed to be now. See, again, uh, people say it's controversial, but I don't think something's controversial that's biblically clear. Amen, everybody. All right, here's the last verse that we're going to read today. Luke chapter 9. 59 down to 62. Come on, give me one more reader. Who will read for me? All right, Adonis, you got that one? Luke chapter 9 is verse number 59 down to verse number 62. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go ahead and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looked back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. There you have it. So basically his last, this last lesson here in Luke 9 is basically what he's saying is a man is called to follow Jesus. And he said, Lord, I'm coming, but let me first go and bury my dead father. Jesus said, let the dead bury the dead. You go and preach the gospel. Now, there's not even a controversy here. So Jesus is far more radical than we are. Because if somebody told me, Pastor, I can't make it the outreach because my dad died over in Florida. I got to go bury him. I'm going to say, go bury your dad. You know what Jesus said? You let them bury him. You go on outreach. That's what Jesus said. Y'all looking at me like I'm crazy. But Jesus said it. He said, your daddy already dead. He's not a saved. Let the other dead people bury him. You, we're going to get some people saved. Let's go. Je Jesus didn't play. Now, I would never do that. Maybe I should change, huh? Oh, Pastor, I got to go to Mississippi for a funeral. Steve, we're going to outreach. You let them folks in Mississippi bury them. You come on. You know what you'd say? Man, Pastor, crazy man. Pastor, he did it. Well, you you wouldn't say that about Jesus. Now, I'm only saying that because Jesus is trying to give you a perspective on family. We know that Jesus is full of love and grace, but his whole point is you've got to have a right perspective when it comes to God's will and your family because love of family and distraction of family and words of family, folks, it can turn people away from God. It can turn people from God's will. And all he's wanting you to understand is, he said, you can't put your hand to the plow and then look back. He said, you wouldn't be fit for the kingdom of God. So there's a lot of issues, folks, when it comes to family that has to be settled here and I'm going to let y'all go home, but you'll never be able to be sold out to God unless you get this perspective that we're talking about today. It's better to deal with this right now and say, Mama, you're in your right place. My husband is in his right place. My kids are in their right place. And God, I'm completely sold out to you. You know your family can keep you from serving God? 
And in some cases, people treat their family like an idol. Like, I, 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 my mom, like the guy says, you know, Pastor, what I'm supposed to do It's my mom. You know, it's like he's made his mom an idol even in God's place. Family can cloud your morals. You know that people who will lie for their family? You know people who will cover their family's sins? Y'all ain't saying nothing. You know, I mean, instead of being righteous, you know, oh, well, this, this is my brother, you know, Pastor. Your brother's a criminal. He's a thief. And they have that covering for you. People go to jail. You don't go to jail for your, your wicked brother. That's the reality of how powerful family can be. And all he wants you to do is have a right perspective. You know, a few years back, we dealt with a situation overseas where one of our great, great disciples got in trouble. It was a moral failure. You know, and the church had to discipline him. He's a great guy. We all loved him. The church had to bring discipline. He didn't like it. And guess who else didn't like it? His family. And instead of them supporting the pastor because he did wrong, and he admitted that he did wrong, no, you're just being a little too hard on him. Making him step down from ministry is humiliating to him. And so he didn't handle it very well. You know what he started doing? Well, I'm not going to go back to that church. And this has been his church for years. All of a sudden, it's that church now. Well, for 15 years, it was your church. Now, so I'm not going back to that church. You already know somebody jacked up when they start talking like that. Now, listen. The problem is that there was probably about eight or nine members of his family who were all also in ministry in that church. And he started bleeding on all of them. And one by one, they started walking out of the church. He didn't just mess up himself, he messed up all these other people. I've even heard that one of the couples, his brother, ended up getting divorced. I'm like, this is crazy. Because every, and, and, and when I talked to two of the people who walked away from the church, I said, What's, this has been your church, I, I preach to you, you're... Yeah, well, it's my family. This is what they said to me. It's my family. What do you mean it's your family? Well, it's my family. They, they're all leaving. I got to go too. No, you don't. See, but some of you can feel this. They say, you're not there right now. But wait till the pastor has to discipline you and tick you off. What are you going to do? I can't believe you you, you, you you disciplined my son. Yeah, your son, the little nasty little fornicator. That's why we stopped him from being an usher and set him down. Well, I can't believe you did that to my son. Family. If you don't have the right perspective, you ought to get behind the pastor and say, you know what, you're right. My son's nasty. Deal with him, pastor. Maybe it'll straighten him out. Oh, mama and grandmama don't like it. Well, we're leaving the church. And then they leave. And then they leave, and they leave because they don't have a right perspective on family. Y'all better hear what I'm saying to you tonight. And so Jesus makes it very clear when he meets Peter. You, you deal with this because the position I'm going to give you is going to be a one of great authority in the kingdom of God. And you can't be wrestling with these issues when it comes to decision making and prayer and leadership and authority. Make sure you have this settled. As a disciple, you have the right perspective 
on family. Everybody got this lesson tonight? Y'all understand it? Come on, if God's going to do great things in our life, this is going to have to be the foundation that we're all built on. It's a foundation that I had to make in my life. When it comes, I told you all a long time ago, when I answered the call of God, my mom didn't want me to do it because my dad was a preacher. She said, boy, you ain't going to make no money being no preacher. I said, but I'm not in it for the money. God called me to preach. Whole lot of people, what do you, what? You spend your life preaching to a handful of people and, you know, barely able to pay your mortgage and all kind of stuff like that. And they so discourage you. You've got to be able to say, you know what? Jesus, the Bible says, that one time didn't even have a place to lay his head. Because it's not about the things of the world. It's about doing the will of God. And so may God help all of us to have that perspective. And remember those scriptures, folks, because they're going to come in handy in your future because you're going to be challenged, like I said, in many of the areas that you don't feel right now. One day, you're going to be feeling them and you want to be able to do the right thing without any hesitation because you've gained the right perspective on family. Amen, everybody? Anybody got any questions? Y'all got the lesson good. All right. Then let's all stand.